when you think of surrender, uh, usually, especially if you're the one doing the surrendering, it doesn't sound like a very good word. You know, you think of one nation having to surrender to another. Uh, in, the, in the movie Lincoln, uh, when it comes time uh, for the Civil War to end and to see the surrender taking place uh, in, that, in that movie, and there's all kinds of tradition, and the horse walks backwards and so forth. Nobody wants to be on the end of waving the white, the white flag and, and surrendering. But repentance is a total surrender that ironically leads to freedom. Surrender, freedom. We surrender to the control. We surrender to the, this thing that I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to be my, my own savior. I'm, I'm going to earn my way. I'm going to pay my way. I'm going to find my own way. I don't need any help. And it takes a lot for most of us. I know it does, it does for me whenever I finally wave the white flag and admit I can't do it on my own and I surrender. I used to say if I had to present the gospel, if I had to teach a what we believe class and I could only use one word, that word would be surrender. Because when you fully surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his authority, and receive his, his salvation, his cleansing blood, and you're transformed and you're filled with his Holy Spirit, it all begins with surrender. We're in a series called Honest with God taken from the book of Psalms and looking at how David expressed his honest feelings, his honest emotions with God. We looked at joy the first week, and then last week we looked at anger. Uh, and this week, we're looking at repentance, of repentance, of saying I'm going to die to myself and live to God. I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to turn from it. I'm going to live for God. And what that looks like and what that costs us and what the benefits of total surrender to God are. Surrender leads to freedom. Today's psalm is Psalm 32, and I'm going to take kind of a, of a chronological approach with the passage. Um, you might say we're going to start with point two, go to point three, and then end with point one, I guess. Um, but we're going to start with uh, the agony that David felt. He starts off much more positive and shares the good news right there in verse 1. And we'll come to that and end with it. But it starts with agonizing. Psalm 32 verses 3 through 4 says this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in agony? You know, something that you knew wasn't right, something you knew needed change, and you were resistant to it. There's still an element of pride. You haven't, haven't waved the white flag. You haven't surrendered yet, and you know you need to, and you know you're going to, but day after day after day, you hang on to it, and you live in the agony that you yourself are driving. Second Samuel 11 tells the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. I recently preached a whole sermon on that, so I won't belabor it too much this morning. But suffice to say, David was hanging around Jerusalem in the spring of the year when warriors went off to battle and the kings leading the way into battle. And he took notice of Bathsheba while she was cleansing herself on the rooftop. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, 
He was off in battle, and she was up there kind of going through a ceremonial cleansing, and David takes notice of her. David allows temptation to become lust, and he allows lust to become fantasy, and he allows fantasy to become reality, and that sin gets him in significant trouble. Bathsheba tells David that she is pregnant. So to cover it up, David tries to arrange a trip home from Uriah in hopes that he'll think about his own. Uriah refuses to spend any time with his wife because as he reasons, I'm not going to do this. All my friends back in battle don't have the opportunity to come home and visit their wives. In his intensity, he decides not to do this. David is panicky. David, desperation, has Uriah placed in the worst part of the battle where ensure his ultimate demise. And when word comes back to David, Uriah is dead, David, seemingly the hero, welcomes Bathsheba, the widow, into his own home as his own wife, he gives birth to their son, and it all seemed well. However, David was consumed with agony, the agony of guilt. Lord, the prophet Nathan to David to confront him about his sin. And it's believed that Psalm 32, like Psalm 51, it tells David's guilt of his repentance, of his restoration, and of the new life that he had. Repentance often lags way behind the agony of guilt. That it takes us a while to know that we are wrong. <laughs> I'm saying that long after we know we've, we've been living in sin, do we finally fall before the Lord and admit it? And if you've ever gone through that, where you know you're in the wrong and you've not repented yet, that time in between identifying the sin in your life and repenting, turning over to the Lord and surrendering, of agony. It's exhausting. I don't know if I'm the only one who's ever had a hard time admitting when I've blown it, but maybe you deal with that too. We know we know to repent and we delay. And I think the reason that we delay can be identified to the work of Satan himself. He wants nothing more than to keep us in agony and torment, to keep us and wrestling with it, trying to figure out how we can save ourselves and not turning to the one who can give us restoration. In the movie, The Lion King, Simba, the little prince cub, received some instigation from his evil uncle Scar, who tells him about how wonderful it is in the Badlands, in the elephant graveyard. Oops, I've said too much, Scar said. It's not too long before the very curious lion cub heads off to this elephant graveyard and a stampede is started and, and, and the, the king, Mufasa, his father, comes to rescue him. And in the process, Mufasa is run over by the stampede and is killed. And there is alone is the lion cub, Simba, totally devastated. And not only 
and with grief of knowing his father was just killed, but with this immediate sense of overwhelming, agonizing guilt that it's happened. And you see the shadow of Uncle Scar coming up behind him, and his words to Simba are, Simba, what have you done? Satan is the tempter, and he's the tormentor. Satan, just like his Uncle Scar, wants to do that to you. He wants to tempt you. He wants to say, oh, that looks fun for a season. <laughs> Give it a try. Hey, have you tried that? Everybody else is doing and the moment you give in and you have this panic, this feeling of guilt, he's the first one in the scene to go, oh my, what did you do? Well, the church think, what would your grandma think? <laughs> and he begins to run, run away and never bring restoration, bring you forgiveness of your sin and that can, that can completely cleanse away your guilt. It's almost as if we think maybe we'll feel better about it over time. You blow a big and in the freshness of the moment, you're eaten up with this guilt, and you think, yeah, this is, this is really bad. But maybe after I have slept a few nights or a month or a few seasons from now, maybe it won't seem so bad. We try to convince ourselves that, yeah, what we did was wrong. But it can be explained away. I mean, after all, and we begin to think about all the justifications for our sin. Uh, I, I, I was tempted beyond what anybody else is, or I was weak, or I was hurting, or anybody else in my position would have done the same thing. Or we say, yeah, I've blown it big time, but at least I'm not as bad as repentance. We find our own weak and inadequate justification. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Proverbs 23.7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. See, no matter who you are, no matter how good of a life you have lived, no matter how many bad deeds you have avoided doing, your system of values, your, your worldview, whatever you, you hold, no matter what that is, you know, as I do, as we all do, that I may be better than most, my good deeds out, may outweigh my bad, but I know I fall short in comparison to God's perfection. And the Proverbs verse I read there reminds us that even our thoughts, if we think it in our heart, we're guilty of the action. Isaiah 64, 6 puts an even sharper point on the end of it and says that our righteousness before God appears as filthy rags. <laughs> filth. Even our righteousness. If you were to jot down the names of some of the greatest followers of Christ this world has ever known, the Billy Grahams, the Mother Teresas, etc., 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 you would be making a list of imperfect people. A list of imperfect people who just like me, just like you, just like all of us, have fallen short and have missed the mark. Word for sin, hamartia, is an archery term that literally means to miss the mark. You picture it, you around to the bullseye. The bullseye, that's where God is, this perfection. And anything shy of right in the middle, in the center of the bullseye, is, is missing that mark. That can be 
devastating news if you didn't already know that you missed the mark. You could also be a little bit freeing in the sense that we are not alone. <laughs> because I'm part of the all, for all have sinned, right? And the reason that we gather in here today as a church family is this is the small club, small group of people here at Boone County who have got it all figured out and are perfect and have no problems and we've got this flawless life. We know that we've blown it. We know we've missed the mark. We know we need a so we gather here on Sunday morning to encourage one another and save us and to break the unleavened bread and to drink the fruit of the vine during communion to remember that our sins washed away by our goodness and by his salvation. I know that's an amazing, an amazing truth. God's perfection. The thing is you have to be lost before you can be found. Greg Laurie writes, any gospel that promises the call of heaven without a warning about hell is the gospel. And any gospel that offers forgiveness from God without saying that we need to repent of our sins is not the gospel. The essential message of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's the message. <laughs> the gospel, the word gospel means good news. <laughs> and so when you share the gospel with someone, sharing the good news with them. And part of the good news is the reality of sin, the reality of, of, of hell, but the good news is that Jesus for our sins. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just three chapters over to the same verse. Romans 6.23 says, Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs> it wasn't just David's feeling guilt that we're weighing the hand of God also Don't miss that. God's love, God loves us too much to let us just go on in our unrepentant sin without putting pressure on us. His overwhelming hand if they love them. Oh, it's easier <laughs> to just let kids stay up late, sleep in eat sugary snacks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, <laughs> avoid homework, have no curfew or other boundaries, watch whatever they want to watch on television. That's easier than having your hand of discipline on them. But a loving parent won't take the easy way out. And God is a loving father, a loving father who meets you where you are, but loves you enough not to just leave you there. We come to him just as we are, but we leave forever changed. Hebrews 12, 7 through 8, endure hardship as discipline, you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone else is disciplined, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So let me ask you, children of God, daughters of the Almighty, what might God be trying to tell you regarding sin, missing the mark, the harmartia in your own life? Has his hand been heavy upon you? Could he perhaps be from wrong and, and back to what is right? Now, not all suffering is a punishment from God. Some of the result of evil people doing it to us. 
Some of it is to strengthen and train us for steps that ahead. Sometimes God steps aside and we are persecuted because we are serving the Lord. Some of it is a test to show how we will respond compared to how those in the world will respond to the same situations who don't know the Lord. Faith, that's all other faith, faith that trusts in the Lord, rain or shine, <laughs> trusts in the Lord when things are easy on the mountaintop and it's a time of jubilant celebration, a true faith can be tested, disciplined, and not run from him, but run to him. But in all suffering, we should evaluate ourselves to see how God can use it to make us more holy for his kingdom. Something I try to do better in my own personal life, and I recommend it for all of us, and that is don't ask why when you feel the hand of the Lord upon you, but ask what. What is God wanting to do through times of pain? How can I learn from it and grow? How can I improve? And that attitude begins with repentance. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the turning point. We've looked at the agony of verses uh, 3 and 4. Now in verse 5, the psalmist writes, I acknowledge sin to you, and I will not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess the transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Kind of reminds me of the prodigal son. Remember that story? Prodigal son is off in the far country, squandering all of his inheritance while his father was still living. And he had hit rock bottom long before, long before he repents and returns home. He's living in the agony. And then one day, a plan. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father. I'll offer one of his hired hands. I'll say, I'll work for you. And he comes up with this, this idea. And it is for him a turning point. And you know that story has a very happy ending. When he returns, his father is watching the horizon and sees him from a great distance. And the father actually runs to his son, meets him, throws his arm around him, has celebration because the son of him, of his, who was lost is now found, who was dead is now alive. Aren't you glad that when you reached your turning point, <clears throat> you were born again in Jesus Christ, that moment in which you said, enough, surrender, aren't you glad that the Father was there to accept you? Not to go over the list of wrongs, but to receive you right where you are. In Acts 2.38, after the apostle Peter had preached this whole sermon, people cried out, what must we do? He replied, he replied, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First thing he told them to do was repent. What must I do about this? What can be done about the fact that our sins have nailed Jesus, the God, to a tree? How can I overcome this? Is there any hope? And yes, there is starts with repentance, a turning point, a time in which you say, surrender, I'm no longer going to live for him. I'm going to die to myself alive in Christ, and the life which I live, I will live for him and for his kingdom. You could almost put three dates on a tombstone, a birth, a physical birth date, a 
spiritual birth date and a physical death date or your eternal entrance date into heaven. Because there is a very real death. It's a good kind of death. It's a repentance kind of death in which you must agree to say, I'm going to die to myself and come alive in Christ. I'm sure we have a baptism. In Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses, we have this beautiful picture of how baptism represents death, his burial in the grave, and his resurrection from the dead. And it's expressing what's going on inside of our hearts when we say the blood of Jesus Christ is and I express this to around me by dying to myself, by allowing someone else me under the watery grave and raising me up that I have now walked in new life in Jesus. You belong to me and I belong to him. I have died myself. And the life that I now live, I live for God. And that brings us to the final thing in this psalm. Back to the beginning, verses 1 and 2. He's gone through the agony over his guilt. Finally said enough. He's reached the turning point, he's repented, and now there is blessing. Blessed. Verses 1 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, there are four things mentioned there. And on Monday, as I was studying this passage, I kept kind of wrestling with this a bit synonymous to me. <laughs> like a, restra- a restating of the same thing used for different words kind of thing. And that has to be something special about these four words for all four of them to have wanted mentioned by a part of this song. It talks about how blessed he is. So the first thing he talks about is transgressions are forgiven. His sins are forgiven. It's forgiveness. Here's what it means for us born again in Christ, you are blessed, and your punishment is waived. You deserve the punishment, but you don't have to fulfill it. Never mind, you can go. <laughs> no jail time, uh, no, uh, no fine to pay, no community service, transgression forgiven. My dad was an excellent disciplinarian. I mean, he really was. And it doesn't mean that he was harsh. Well, actually, it means that he was very fair. If you were grounded because of a report card below your level of ability, then you were grounded for nine weeks until you brought them up, your grades. Nine weeks didn't mean seven and a half weeks just because your middle school planned a country western dance in their gymnasium that you weren't expecting. It meant nine weeks. <laughs> that was oddly specific, wasn't it? <laughs> Seventh grade, Charleston, Indiana, circa 1982. <laughs> if bedtime was at 9 p.m., 9 p.m. didn't mean 8.50 or 9.10. It meant 9. My dad had been in the military, and he was very, very structured. Still is to this very day. But the thing that made my dad an excellent disciplinarian, more than his fairness, was the way that he showed grace on rare occasions and when it wasn't expected because grace was the best teacher of all in those moments. Rare as they were, he had the wisdom to recognize those 
supplements. <laughs> ironically, or maybe not so ironically, the few that stick out in my mind the most were times when I had blown it the biggest. I'm not going to give you any examples. <laughs> but I can think of a few times where I had blown it big time. And based on all of the consistent fairness I had received up my life, this could only mean one thing. I am in big trouble. <laughs> and yet, Dad would show complete grace. And you know what? That grace was the most powerful discipline and lesson he could give, and give me. Have you ever received grace when punishment was warranted? If it's rare, when it's wisely administered, grace is a very powerful thing. And if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you do not deserve hell, you deserve the reality of eternal of, of, of hell, and yet you're not going to worry at all about going there, you have blessed assurance, then you know you've received some incredible grace. Am I right? And that ought to have an impact on how you choose to live your life. You ought to want to do good. Not out of fear so much, but out of joy and blessing. Because God has done so much for you. How could you not want to live for him? When your transgressions are forgiven, it causes this kind of joy and happiness and blessing in you that chooses to do good. The second thing that he says in the passage is that sin is covered. Our sins are covered. So you're blessed when not only is your your punishment gets waived, but when your record gets expunged. You know, it's one thing to let a person out on, on some kind of um, plan, some sort of a deferral program, to get a ticket within a year and, and, and you don't have to pay the fine kind of thing. But if it stays on your record and it's always there for life and it kind of hangs over you, that's a burden. David says... That his sins are covered, blanketed, hidden, remembered more. The first word in the book of Psalms is the word blessed. Blessed. And the word blessed simply means to be happy. <laughs> if you're walking with the Lord, if you're striving to please him, if you're living your life the way God would, have, would live it through you, if your thoughts and your actions and your words align with the Bible, then you are blessed. You're happy. Be glad in the Lord. I had someone one time tell me they were very upset with Duck Dynasty because the grandpa on the show had that expression, three words. Remember them? Say them with me if you know them. Happy, happy, happy. <laughs> and this person told me one time, God told us to be happy. <laughs> well, in the Old Testament, the word there for blessed, if it means happy, then we have a reason to be happy, happy, happy. It's worth pointing out that the same word blessed is used of the righteous person in Psalm 1 that is used here in Psalm 32 of the confessed sinner. His sin is forgiven. God not only forgives our sins, but he casts them in the forgetful sea. And when we repent and we say to the Lord, I did it again, he responds with, did what again? <laughs> the next little phrase there that's used under this blessed Two verses. No iniquity, he says. No iniquity does the Lord count against me. So we are blessed when our debt gets erased. Our punishment gets waived. Our sin gets 
forgotten, covered up, and there is no iniquity that is remembered about us. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Max Lucado writes in his book, The Angels Were Silent. He says, Hell was not prepared for people. For a person to go to hell then is for a person to go against God's intended destiny. Hell is man's choice, not God's choice. And in the verse that Larissa read so well for us earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but, he, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God's plan is. That's what God's desire is. That's what God wants for every one of us. Someone said, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? God didn't send anyone to hell. In fact, he sent his son to the earth to try to keep man from going there. If you've ever seen that, that bridge illustration where a person will write God's name on one side, us on the other side, and then they draw this chasm, and they say that sin, the sin death, death of sin has separated us. God, and then what do they draw to cover that chasm? The cross. The cross of Jesus covers it, and it's up to us to choose to cross over to the other side to express to God our repentance. Psalm 32, verses 9 through 11 goes on to talk about how we mustn't be like a horse and a mule that have to constantly be guided and constantly be reminded. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32, 11 says. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and shout for joy. Because if you're a repentant sinner who's been born again into Jesus, then you have a reason to be joyful because you are truly blessed. Pray with me. Father God, we do thank you for the blessing that we have through Jesus. God, we are grateful that, Lord, it is a gift from you one in which we can't earn but must be humble enough to accept. And Father, in, in, that, um, in that promise and in this moment, have your way. Lord, as we sing praises to you as the team, Kathy and Ridge and the team up here lead us, God, I pray that you would do work, eternal work, in the hearts of each person here. That, Lord, those of us who are born again into your Son will be able to sing and shout praises of joy. But those who aren't, Father, I pray for that agony, God, to do its work. That your hand upon them would cause them to come to that turning point where they say enough is enough. They'll wave the white flag. They'll quit trying to be good enough on their own. And, Father God, that you'll give them both the courage and the humility to step out and say today is the day of salvation for me. And, God, that they can become a born-again follower of your Son. And it's in your Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen.